But tonight, what he'll pivot to is joy and identity. Who am I? Uh, How do I know who I am? And where do I find the answer? That's what Paul is going to break open for us here at the beginning of Philippians chapter 3. So if you would, read with me here the first 11 verses. Finally, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the real circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness, under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection of the dead. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God will stand forever. This is God's word for us tonight. I don't know about you, but I think Moana, the Disney princess, uh, is a wonderful exposition on identity and searching for identity. How many people are with me? Yeah. Anyway, I have little kids and I listen to Disney movies in the car over and over and again. I could quote the whole movie to you. Uh, The Rock is really good. Anyway, sorry, rabbit trail. This is one of the things that uh, she sings. She says this. She says, the call isn't out there at all. It's inside me. It's like the tide always falling and rising. I will carry you here in my heart. You'll remind me that come what may, I know the way. I am Moana. My little girl could scream that at the top of her lungs for you, but she's not here. I am Moana. And the thing is, there's like 10 of y'all tracking with me at this point, but the thing about it is, if only it was so easy to find ourselves like it was for Moana, if only it, only it was for us to suck it up, sail across the ocean, to find uh, Dwayne the Rock Johnson and restore the heart of Tafiti. How many Disney lovers still with me there? All right. But think, that's pretty much every Disney movie in a nutshell, I think. But we can sympathize with it, I think. I think all of us can sympathize it if we really are honest. That's the power of the story. It's why it's a tried and true story and you can fit any character in it and you find it again. Because if there's one thing that mutually defines any and all of us human beings, it's the fact that we are all daily trying to figure out who we are. We're all doing this. 
Those of you among us that can say most confidently you know who you are, fit into this. Because daily, we are searching, daily we are finding and looking for the answer to the question, who are we? And there's a sense in which you could say this is, the, this is one of the quests of the Christian life. Now that I know Jesus, now that I'm in Jesus, now that I'm going to live by the power of Jesus, how do I daily come to the knowledge anew of what it means to know what my identity is in Jesus? And to all of that, I think Paul wants to tell us tonight about joy and identity. There is something in the gospel that we can know that provides a tangible, a concrete, an ultimate joy. So I want to look at that with you. Joy and identity. Three things. I want to look at identity theft, fake IDs, and identity restoration. I'm not going to lie. I'm really proud of that. Um, So let's look at the first one. Identity theft, okay? Identity theft. We've all heard the commercials, haven't we? Or maybe it's just me who listens to talk radio. Um... Identity theft affects millions every year. And so for one low monthly price, you can pay these people and they will lock down your identity and no one can steal it. I don't think that's true. But you look at the beginning of chapter 3 here, and let's be honest, it's a bit abrasive, isn't it? Look out for the dogs, the evildoers, the mutilators of the flesh. It is a bit abrasive, it is, but I would suggest to you, with all that we read, with all that Paul's about to say, it actually makes perfect sense. Because what he's about to unpack for us is the glorious and ultimate joy that is ours in knowing what our identity is in Christ. That's what he's about to unpack. And so in very strong terms, this is what he's doing at the beginning. He's calling out thieves of joy. He is calling out those people who are hell-bent on robbing Christians of the joy that the gospel gives them. They don't think that's what they're doing, but Paul's saying that's exactly what these people do. He's talking about this group that was known as the Judaizers. All right? um, long story short, the Judaizers were this group of Jewish Christians who presented themselves as having the true gospel. They had the true gospel because they knew how to be truly spiritual, how to be truly right with God, how to really live in such a way that you could be truly and in a superior way right with God. They would say, yes, Jesus, faith in Jesus, yes, but also you better do this or you better do that. And one of the things uh, he mentions it by implication when he says we are the true circumcision, some of you, maybe you read that and like, what in the world does that mean? Well, that's one of the things that this group did. They would say, yes, the gospel is great. Yes, the Jesus is, Jesus is great. But you also better observe circumcision. And you're like, oh, okay. And what was happening in the early churches at the time is that a lot of Christians were being burdened by this and feeling like, oh, we must not be being Christians right. And so we need to observe these Jewish Old Testament things. And so they would say, yeah, um, the gospel doesn't mean you have to be ethnically Jewish, but you still got to observe all these Jewish things. And so let me sum up for you what Paul thinks about these people. Well, actually, I don't have to sum it up for you. He says it in verse 2. Look out for the dogs. From a Jewish vantage point, of which Paul was a Jew, which he goes on to tell us in a minute, to call someone a dog was the worst thing you could call them. Okay? Calls them dogs. Um, That's what pagan Gentiles, unbelieving, godless Gentiles, were referred to as dogs. And he's saying, ironically, these people who are super Jews 
are no better than the Gentile dogs. Then he calls them evildoers, which is ironic because they would say, we really know how to live a good life in the eyes of God. But Paul says, nope, they're evil. Then he calls them mutilators of the flesh. And I I don't know what all that, you know, obviously it, it has something to do with circumcision. But I think it means something like this. Paul is saying, you might as well just cut up any piece of flesh on you. That's how much good it would do you from what they're saying about circumcision and being a Christian. And so again, we read it, and he's being pervasive, uh, pervasive, uh, abrasive. And so the question remains, is Paul just being a petty jerk here? Well, I hope you'll agree with me as we continue here. No. Uh, He's being dead serious. Let me read you another place. Galatians, he takes up these people uh, once again in their effect on the church at Galatia. And listen to what he says at the outset of the letter to the Galatians. He says, I am astonished. That you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is a different one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Now catch what he says now. But even if we, meaning including himself, or an angel from heaven even, should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one that we preached to you the first time, let that person be accursed. Meaning, damn that person to hell. That's what he's saying. As we have said before, now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one that you received, let him be accursed. Let him be eternally damned to hell. And he's being serious. Now we say, man, Paul probably had some OCD problems. But... You know what Jesus said in the same vein? Jesus said about those who would lead his children astray that it would be better for them for a millstone to be tied around their neck and then to be cast in the sea. Jesus said that about people, okay? So this is strong language, yes, but I hope you're you're beginning maybe, hopefully, to see what Paul's saying. What he's saying for is this. What he's saying is this. If you believe what these people say, you're going to lose the gospel, Not a part of it, not a piece of it. All of it. Because the point Paul is making is if you take the gospel and you say that anything else is needed, you lose the whole thing. And if you lose the whole thing, guess what else you lose? Your identity. You lose the identity that you have in Christ that the gospel tells you about. There's an added dimension to it for Paul as well, to his concern. Uh, Sammy Rhodes wrote a book named This is Awkward. And I love it. One of the things he does at the beginning of this book, he defines awkwardness. And he says this. He says, awkwardness is the gap between who you really are and who you should be. A disconnect between the real you and the ideal you. Okay? So, awkward is a phenomenon for all of us that we all get because we all know what it's like to have light shined on the gap between who we really are and who we wish we were. That's awkward. And so what Paul sees here and what he's beginning to open up is that he knows that there's a temptation for all of us. Because we know that there's a gap between who we are and who we should be, there's a temptation for all of us to believe that, yeah, I got the gospel, but did I miss something? Do I need something else? Maybe I I was supposed to observe circumcision. Maybe I was supposed to observe these Jewish feasts and these Jewish Sabbaths. Maybe I missed it. Jesus was a Jew. So we're all prone in one way or another to add things in search of this ideal me. And look, there's tons of examples we could go with, but let me just name a few. 
Are we not doing the same thing? Any of you. I don't care what side of the political spectrum that you're on. Are we not all doing this when we think or say or tweet even worse that it's unimaginable that a person could be a Christian yet vote for X or Y party? You're being a Judaizer in that moment. The gospel, I... mm, Rain it in. There's no such thing as a Democrat or a Republican in the Bible. Okay? Let me just say that. What are we doing? Are we not doing the same thing when our greatest desire for someone spiritually is not that they grow closer to Jesus, but they grow closer to my theology? Is that not what we're doing? Well, yeah, I don't even want to mention example denomination, so I'll just stop. Are we not doing the same thing? And when you say, well, yeah, he's a Christian, but you know what fraternity he's in, right? Or you know what she did in high school, right? Are we not doing the same thing? What am I doing when I judge at all? And here's the thing. You could be judging other people or you could be judging yourself. And you know what Paul is saying that you're doing. He's saying you're a thief. You are robbing others or even robbing yourself Of the joy of the identity that is supposed to be yours, that is yours in the gospel and the gospel alone. And Paul is very passionate about this. He hates thieves. He doesn't want us to be thieves. And he doesn't want us to give in to them either. So first thing that Paul warns us about is identity theft. But then Paul makes it personal. He moves on to this thing uh, that I would like to call fake IDs. Now, I know in this room, y'all probably don't know what fake IDs are. They're these things that... uh... All right, I'll leave that there. You see, what Paul does here, he's not just making an emotional appeal. He's making a personal appeal. Because these people, they say, yeah, the gospel's great, faith is great, but you need some other things. And Paul says, okay, let me go down that road with you for a minute. They want to put confidence in the flesh. You are tempted to put confidence in the flesh. All right, well, I want you to giddy up because I want to tell you when it comes to confidence in the flesh, you will never hold a candle to me. And he means it. And so he goes down this little biographical, autobiographical sketch, doesn't he? Have you ever heard the saying um, that some of you were born on third base and grew up believing that you hit a triple? You ever heard of that? It's like a anecdote about privilege um and that's usually most of us i know that was me what paul says here basically is i was born on third but i also hit for the cycle hitting for the cycle in baseball is when you get a single a double a triple and a home run okay he's saying not only was i born on third but i've done it all what does he say he says one the greek he literally says there i'm an eight dayer Meaning, you know how the Bible in the Old Testament says how you should circumcise your children? It said you should circumcise them on the eighth day. Boom. Don't get better than that. It says he's of the tribe of Benjamin. So not only am I descended from our father Jacob, but I'm descended from his favorite son. And also, the tribe that King Saul, which we don't know, but maybe he was named after King Saul. King Saul was also from the tribe of Benjamin. He says, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. What does he mean there? He says, look, I grew up in Tarsus, but you better believe I don't speak any of that dirty Greek. It's not a fraternity joke. It's a language thing. Um, All right, never mind. He says, look, my family is so orthodox that they sent me back to Jerusalem to study under the best 
Galamaliel, I can't even say his name. Corey Galamaliel, say it for me. Anyway, Corey's not back there. Never mind. Um, As to the law of Pharisee, look, let me sum up Pharisees for you. Pharisees spent, devoted their lives to making up their own laws to help them keep the law better. Nerds, basically. All right. Zeal. Now, this is a personal one, right? I motivated people and I presided over the persecution unto death at times of Christians. Why? Because they blasphemed the law. That's how much I love the law. Righteousness under the law, blameless. This is what he's saying there. You look at my life. You look at the time period of my life where I sought to keep the law. And I can bet you a million dollars you will not find one instance that I failed. And he means it. Feeling the weight of this. So this is what Paul's saying. Paul's saying, look, you want this false gospel? You want to think that the gospel offers you the Son of God Himself and you think you need something else? Alright, I'll play that game. And you play that game with me and I will smoke you. He's saying, none of them and none of you will ever hold a candle to what I did with the law. And you know what it did for me? Absolutely nothing. Absolutely nothing. Actually, he goes on to say it actually did a little bit more than nothing. Because in verse 7, what does he say? Then it kind of turns, right? Look at verse 7. He says, let me read it. Verse 7 and 8. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. It wasn't just nothing. It didn't just gain Him nothing. It discredited Him. It was lost to Him. He says it three different ways that it was lost for Him. It was not gain. It wasn't even zero sum. It was negative. It was loss. And so what he does, he looks at his former life, he looks at his kind of spiritual fake ID, as it were, it's far superior than anything anyone else could have offered. And he says, there came a part, a time in my life where I realized it was nothing compared to Jesus. And there is nothing that would have ever made it count for anything, especially compared to Jesus. That's what he's saying. And I want you to, you know, I don't want to be crass. I mean, sometimes I do, but not here. (laughs) You want to know the weight of what Paul says? My translation says rubbish. I count those things as rubbish. I want you to feel the weight of the Greek here. He basically says, I looked at all the things in my life that I thought made me pristine, and I realized in the face of Jesus that it was all horseshit. That's what he's saying. The word is literally, I won't say it again. It's like the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 64 who says, All of us have become clean and even our righteous deeds are like filthy rags in the sight of God. Even the good things about us are filthy, the prophet says. And Paul repeats here. Now look, I don't have any expertise with fake IDs. That's honest. Yeah, that's honest opinion. Um, 
But what's true anytime, and none of y'all know what this is like, but what's true anytime you use a fake ID? Anytime you use a fake ID is every time you're worried that you're going to be busted. It's like he's going to look at it and say, so you're 40-year-old Ryan Johnson from uh, Wisconsin, huh? Yes, sir. Work in the oil business. Thank you. You see, the reality that you and I have to face that we need to be honest about is that we spend every single day trying to craft the perfect spiritual fake ID. That's us. And see, the thing about it is whether you're Christian or not, that's true. Whether you're Christian or not, whether you're religious or not, that's true. Because at the end of every day, every single one of us has something that we hold up. And we say, at least I got this. At least I got this. This is what makes me okay. It's whatever at the end of the day, you say, well, at least. And what do you fill the blank in with? Well, you know, at least I'm still making good grades. Still, at least I'm still going to get a good job. At least I'm still going to make good money. Or it's, well, at least I've got these friends. And I can do these things with them. Or, <laughs> at least I've never done that. That one makes us feel real good, doesn't it? Or, at least he's still dating me. Or at least she still says she loves me. The thing we're doing... None of those things are bad in and of themselves. The clue is in the at least part. Because what we're saying when we say at least is, when all else fails, blank. And you know what the problem with all those things is? Any of them could fail you at any moment. And you're staking your life and identity on them. And you don't even know it. You're crafting this fake ID, but you don't even realize is you've forgotten your real name. You couldn't even tell you what your real birthday is anymore. Because you memorized the fake one. Again, I don't have any expertise with this. But, look, this is why the gospel, and I think Paul would agree, why the gospel comes as truly a shock to our system. Because what he's saying is when we count as profit, what we count as profit, what we've spent our lives, what we, lives, what we, what we spend our days counting as profit, when it comes to our standing with God, Those things are loss. They don't gain us anything. One of my favorite sitcoms, I actually never watched it, it was on TV. I started watching it on Netflix, and I'm pretty sure I've watched the whole series, seven seasons, at least three times through. It's amazing. Malcolm in the Middle. Anybody watch this, Malcolm in the Middle? All right, it's hilarious. Uh, The guy from Breaking Bad is the father in it. It's amazing. Anyway... My favorite part about Malcolm in the Middle is the oldest son, Francis. Because he is a colossal screw-up. He never, by the time the show starts, he's been sent off to military school and never lives at home over the whole seven seasons. But he is a colossal screw-up. He's a juvenile delinquent. He's openly rebellious to any and every kind of authority. Um, He spends the first few seasons at a military school, always butting heads with the commander. Uh, Then he gets this other job somewhere else that seems like a good job, but he butts heads with the boss there, always doing dumb stuff and messing everything up there. But then towards late in the series, he gets this really awesome job basically running a ranch. This owner has no experience of running a ranch, so he hires Francis to do it. And what's interesting is over the two seasons that he's running this ranch, he's great. 
He like he's married. He has a has a beautiful wife, and everything's good between them. And he runs the ranch the right way. He doesn't mess up at all. He loves his boss. His boss loves him. And it's kind of weird because you spend all these seasons watching him be a colossal screw up. Well, then you get to the last season. At the the first episode of the last season, you find out that Francis doesn't have his job anymore. And this is the reason: is after a couple of years, one of the big jobs for Francis was that he had to take the ranch's deposit to the bank every so often. And what they realized was the first time he went to the bank, there was a guy standing outside the bank that said, oh, I'll take that for you. And so every time he went to the bank after that, he gave the deposit to some guy outside of the bank. And the ranch had no money, right? So basically he had this cushy job. And then at some point, he goes to measure all the profit that he has made. And there's nothing. The gospel, first and foremost, comes to you and it puts a mirror in front of you and says, you don't even know what you look like. You have nothing. All these things that you've propped yourself up with. When you truly get grace, when you truly see grace for what it is, you will see that everything in your life that you previously held up to God and said, please tell me I'm okay because of this. You'll see, not only did it not gain you anything, but it actually counted against you as loss. It pulls the rug out from under you. And so again, maybe this helps you understand why so many people we encounter in the New Testament hated the gospel. You ever wondered about that? We Christians believe that gospel is the power of salvation for all who believe. It sounds like the greatest thing ever, and it is. And so it's worth asking the question, why do people hate it? Because of what we're talking about right here. That all we've built for ourselves is nothing but a flimsy, maybe comical even, fake ID. And we didn't even know the difference. So Paul wants to warn us about identity theft. He wants to warn us about fake IDs. But ultimately, he wants to point us to identity restoration. Let me just wrap it up with this. We need two things. Two things if we're going to get this identity restoration that Paul wants to tell us about. We need loss and we need gain. We need loss and we need gain. You see, the question is, okay, I get the loss part, but what do I, if I'm going to turn away from those things, what am I turning to? That's what Paul wants to answer. Well, the first thing is we need loss. This is what Jesus' encounter with the rich young ruler was about, right? You get that. The rich young ruler who came to Jesus and said, Look, Jesus, I want to follow you. I want to be a disciple. What do I need to do? Jesus says, Well, you know the commandments. And he lists a couple of them. Go do those. And the guy says to him, very genuinely, honestly, All these I have kept from my youth. And we read there that Jesus, looking at him, loved them, Had pity on him. Because Jesus processed the fake ID that he had. And he said, okay, you want to do something to follow me. You lack one thing. Sell everything that you own. Give it to the poor. And then you can come follow me. And we're told there that the rich young ruler went away sad. Because he had great possessions. Now look, I don't know what your thoughts about evangelism are. But if you were going to grade Jesus on his evangelism there, wouldn't you give him an F? He told the guy the one thing that was going to turn him away. Why? Because the rich young ruler needed loss. Because he had no idea what it meant. No idea. 
And some of you are thinking to yourself, look, I know that I can't earn favor with God, but I really want you to be honest for just a second. Maybe you know that you can't earn acceptability to God, but can you honestly say that you don't think that there are things that you need to do to be more acceptable to God? Here's a simple question. In a week where you go to RUF and church, do you feel better about how you stand with God than a week that you don't go to RUF and don't go to church? There's a clue there for you. You need to go to RUF and church, but you get the point. Here's another tangible test. What do other people feel like they need to be when they're around you? How do you make people feel that they need to be to be acceptable to you? By the things you do, by the things you say. For you, for you students in the Greek system, you could apply it like this. What do people not in your fraternity or sorority, this especially applies to you as a Christian, if you're a Christian in the Greek system. What do people who are not in your fraternity and not in your sorority, whether Greek or not Greek, What do they feel like they need to be to get to know you or for you to care about them at all? For you non-Greek RUFers in particular, non-Greek RUFers in particular, do Greeks and people who have involvement in other things other than RUF and more so than RUF, Do they feel like they can belong to RUF just as much as you feel you belong to RUF? In other words, look, we're a ministry. We don't have membership. Do you make people feel like they can't be members at RUF? Even though we don't have membership? That's astounding. We all do this. Sufjan Stevens had a song called John Wayne Gacy Jr. It's a very appalling song in beautiful ways in a weird way John Wayne Gacy Jr. was a serial killer who dressed up as a clown and hid bodies underneath his house that's what the song's about and at the end of the song he says this This it's like the last line of the song in my best behavior I am just like him look beneath my floorboards for the secrets I have hid Now, I don't know Sufjan Stevens' personal relationship with Jesus. He professes to be a Christian. But I'll say at least this. Sufjan Stevens knows what it's like to experience loss. And to know what tells me I'm any better than that. Nothing in this world can, I think is the point of the song. We need to know the loss that Paul talks about here. But how? And that's what I end with. Hopefully my first finally of the evening, I think. It's one thing to turn away from those things. It's another thing to know what we turn to. And what does Paul say? Look at the end of verse 8. I turn away from these things. I count these things as loss. Why? That I may gain Christ. That's it. That's it. And that I may be found in him not having a righteousness of my own but that which comes through faith in Christ. This is what I want you to imagine. Can you imagine something happening to you that shows you that everything you've ever believed that to make you you is a fraud? Can you imagine a real life example of that? 
And then can you imagine how devastating that would be? It is devastating. But Paul says, look, I experienced the, def- the devastation, but this is what I need you to hear. It gave me life. I experienced the devastation, but it gave me life. How in the world is that? I don't know if y'all caught this uh, kind of video story that went viral here last week or two uh, about a guy named Justin Gallegos, who's a junior University of Oregon. He's also a club runner. He's not a student athlete at Oregon, but he's a club runner. Um, he's, the neat thing about him being a club runner is that he was born, born with a cerebral palsy. But he loves running. He aspires even to break the two-hour barrier, uh, run a marathon under two hours. He talks about when he was a kid, because of his palsy, he could barely even put one foot in front of the other. But through physical therapy and using a walker, he ended up moving away from a walker. He ended up moving away from just walking to running. And he loves running. And so the story is that Nike showed up at this club meet because they wanted to film him run the race. And so he just thinks that they're there to to run the race. But I I don't know if it was before the race started or after the race. This representative from Nike is there. He's talking to all the runners. And he says this, well, actually, we have another reason that we're here today. And that's to offer... Justin Gallegos, a three-year contract to be an official, professional Nike athlete. How cool is that? All right? An official, and obviously he is overcome with gratitude and emotion at this. But the neatest part, you've got to go Google it and find it because it's one of those videos that the music makes you want to cry and it's awesome. But at the end, it's so powerful because what they end with is you hear the Nike rep say this to him. Look. In our eyes, you're just a Nike athlete. Let that sink in for a second. In our eyes, you're nothing but a Nike athlete now. Meaning, on one hand, we don't view you as the runner with cerebral palsy. But also this. Can you think of some other Nike athletes? LeBron, Michael Jordan, Tiger Woods, Roger Federer. And many, many more. And so what was the Nike rep saying? In our eyes, we view you as no different than LeBron. You see what Paul is saying he found in the gospel? And what he's so worried about us losing? Is what he found in the gospel, what he says here is that God said to him because of Jesus, Paul, when I look at you, I see nothing but Jesus. Paul, when I look at you, persecutor of Christians, self-righteous Pharisee, zealous person who likes to use curse words when he writes the Bible, I see my son. That's all I see. Everything that's true of him in my eyes Paul, it's true of you now. Joy and identity found in the gospel. What I would offer to you is that if we truly knew that, if we truly found it, we could sing like the great hymn, Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling, naked come to thee for dress, helpless Look to thee for grace. Foul I too, the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, 
or I die. There is joy to be found in your identity in Christ in the gospel. Let's pray. Lord, Lord Jesus, would you impress upon us again that we don't just carry your banner. We wear your crown because you put it on our heads. Father, that's so hard to believe. We don't deserve that. But that's not what you see. Would you help us believe that tonight, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.